Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast, end of the week of August 8th, which is the 11th Sunday after Pentecost, and I know you were dying to know that. So we are rolling right along in summer. We're all taking our last vacations before the new school year begins, and I hope everybody's staying safe. We all know that COVID is a very fluid situation with how things are going in L.A. County and around the country for that matter. So uh, we are, you know, going to kind of change plans potentially depending on how uh, the Delta variant changes things for us. So stay tuned for that. We uh, will let you all know if anything uh, drastically changes. Next week, we will be in person again. Please we ask that everybody be uh, vaccinated and also wear a mask. That is just our request to keep everybody as safe as possible. So in person, 10 a.m. next Sunday, Kelly will be leading us in worship and our conversation time. So stay tuned for that. And also next week, we are having our second uh, outdoor night market at Mission Hills from 4 to 10. That's Saturday. And come out. Uh, we'll have good food. We'll have a lot of vendors. And it should be a fun time to spend with the community. Um, that you don't have to wear a mask; it's an outdoor event. So uh, we're kind of asking all the all the vendors to have sanitizer and to wear masks, but uh, do do not have to wear a mask if you're just a, a guest to that. So I think that's all of the announcements for this week. This week we are rolling right along in John chapter six, uh, starting off where we left off in verse thirty-five from last week. So if it sounds familiar, that's what's going on. All right. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. The person who aligns with me hungers no more and thirsts no more ever. I've told you this explicitly because even though you have seen me in action, you do not really believe me. Every person the father gives me eventually comes running to me. And once this person is with me, I hold on and do not let go. I came down from heaven not to follow my own agenda, but to accomplish the will of the one who sent me. This, in a nutshell, is that will, that everything handed over to me by the Father be completed, not a single detail missed. And at the wrap-up of time, I have everything and everyone put together upright and whole. This is what my Father wants, that anyone who sees the Son and trusts who he is and what he does, and then aligns with him, will enter real life, eternal life. My part is to put them on their feet alive and whole at the completion of time. At this, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven, the religious authorities started arguing over him. Isn't this the son of Joseph? Don't we know his father? Don't we know his mother? How can he say, I came out of heaven and expect anyone to believe him? And Jesus said, don't bicker among yourselves. You're not in charge here. The father who sent me is in charge. He draws people to me. That's the only way you will ever come. Only then I do my work, putting people together, setting them on their feet, ready for the end. This is what the prophets meant when they wrote, and then they will be personally taught by God. Anyone who has spent any time at all listening to the father, really listening and therefore learning comes to me to be taught personally to see it with his own eyes, to hear it with his own ears from me, since I have it firsthand from the Father. No one has seen the Father except the one who has his being alongside the Father, and you can see me. I am telling you the most solemn and sober truth now. 
Whoever believes in me has real life, eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the desert and died. But here now is bread that truly comes down from heaven. Anyone eating this bread will not die ever. I am the bread, living bread, who came down out of heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever. The bread and I present to the world so that it can be so that I can eat and live is myself, this flesh and blood self, the word of the Lord. Okay, that was uh, a rather long lectionary. The lection has uh, a few of those verses taken out, and I just threw them in so we could get the whole context of that story. Uh, so here we are talking about uh, more bread of life discourse stuff. We talked about it last week. Uh, Jesus is enigmatic words, I and the bread of life, uh, the person that aligns with me will not hunger, will not thirst. And he, in this part of the story, really expounds on that. And you, we feel the scene shift from the group of people that uh, were looking for him last week to uh, the religious authorities who are questioning here. And most of us know that uh, many times these stories, uh, like those in John 6, um, are, I think, used I think we could fairly say used uh, by religious people to argue for uh, the exclusivity of Jesus uh, in how it's a very, uh, what he's saying here sort of sounds narrow when in actuality, uh, I think what we talked about last week is that Jesus is making some radical claims about his kind of unbound universality, if that makes sense. Uh, the way that I personally like to think about some at least just on the surface of it, like the universal significance of Jesus, I think is probably a little bit different than the way some traditional forms of Christianity would talk about the importance of Jesus, which is usually in terms of salvation, uh, a sense of God's divine plan for a person's life. It's very self-focused. Um, it has a lot of times something to do with like a tribal-like chosenness to a particular re religious or social group. So you get a sense of belonging there. Uh, or it has something to do, like Jesus is significant because it has something to do about developing a really tight religious belief system or dogma or even like behavioral expectation from uh, God or what that particular religious group has as the expectation that they place on uh, the, per the person, the individual for behavior or belief. And I think sometimes that's why uh, traditional forms of Christianity would, would point to Jesus and see something very exclusive or uh, would say that, okay, this is why Jesus is significant because it leads to these very... Um, definite individual things, whether salvation, religious belief, or um, the, the sense of chosenness that an individual gets for sort of, quote unquote, believing in this stuff, which is a word in the English translation that's thrown around a lot in John, which we, we talked about earlier in the year when we were talking about this gospel. And what is the nature of belief and how does that, how does that function in our life, especially if we're not, if we're not looking through the lens of uh, traditional Christianity, that the significance of Jesus is something different than what I've just laid out, uh, that the importance of Jesus, it seems to me, uh, if it produces nothing more than uh, some thoughts we have or some 
behavioral changes or our attachment to a, a certain group of people, then to me, Jesus is, honestly isn't that interesting. If that's all it's producing, dogma, chosenness, and a behavioral change, uh, that's just not that interesting. I mean, I think it's important to examine this passage as Jesus is talking about his identity. And we had the group gathered last week around Jesus after the feeding of the 5,000. And they have kind of this like curiosity to them. And they're asking about who he is and what he's doing and how they can get in on it. And then we have this group of religious people, religious authorities around him, really questioning in a more skeptical or disruptive way about who Jesus is and what Jesus's identity, purpose, and honestly meaning is. And we know that the author of the Gospel of John is conveying this, you know, not quite a hundred years later, but the end of the first century, the beginning of the second century is when uh, the Gospel of John is is sort of packing for the community, unpacking for the community uh, who Jesus is, why he's significant, and what his mission is for um, the early Christians in Rome at the at the turn of the century there. So I think it's important for us to, to read this passage and, and really wrestle with the question, why is Jesus significant? And maybe that's something that we can talk about on Sundays, really the question, why is Jesus significant? I think it's a question that honestly a lot of progressives struggle with because many of the assumptions that I was mentioning earlier that we have about Jesus or what a lot of traditional Christianity says this is why Jesus is important are no longer held in the same way by uh, many quote unquote progressive Christians, post-Christians, deconstruction, whatever you want to call that, that's that form of non-traditional Christianity. We really struggle with the question or sort of maybe avoid asking or articulating why Jesus is important or significant because, uh, our experience in evangelical or traditional Christianity, uh, Jesus is significant because he's tied to those things like salvation, belief, dogma, and behavior. So uh, <laughs> I was laughing at this and thinking about this question this week uh, as I was reading this text for the lectionary. As I was running uh, past this building that's pretty close to the church, and I noticed there's this, I mean, there's this massive fence that goes around this uh, property, and somebody had professionally covered up all of the crosses, like dozens of crosses that are on every link of this wall that go around. So they covered up all of these crosses and then they put a black plastic trash bag on the cross that sits on top of the building. And I was just laughing because I was like, wow, in some ways, like, I think we... Like when we don't know what to do with Jesus or Christianity or, or you know, we f still feel um, compelled by something, drawn by something um, beautiful within the tradition, but we're not quite sure how to articulate it. I think sometimes our impulse is to just like paper over and cover up all the pro problematic aspects of Christianity, which we know we know are there. And one of the things I think is important to for us to do as quote unquote progressives, or again, whatever you want to call um, the the wide swath of people uh, that you know belong to Mission Hills, uh, which we are not all in the same place. We don't come from similar uh, religious backgrounds uh, in in any kind of way, but we're all trying to wrestle with. Uh, I think 
the question of the significance of Jesus or what the author of John in this particular story is trying to convey about who Jesus is in this text. And at some level, we have to accept, rather than paper over um, all of the problematic aspects of this faith that we find ourselves belonging to in whatever kind of way uh, we do, we have to incorporate the good and the bad because I think it's from that place that we can kind of move um, to something that at least something beneficial can emerge from that space rather than just papering over all of the problematic uh, crosses. So as whatever progressives we are, whatever label you want to use, I think we then, at least what I hear in progressive circles, uh, I tend to hear uh, Jesus called, you know, things like a great moral teacher. Uh, sometimes we see him as a, a liberator or an activist, or perhaps we like uh, the mystic Jesus who offers a path for uh, enlightenment or ecstasy. And as we, we've talked about before in John's gospel, that um, since it, it dates at the end of the first century, um, the author has a different like the ideas about Jesus, the theology about Jesus has has developed since uh, Jesus's death and resurrection uh, at the first half of the first century. And so when John writes at the beginning of the gospel, uh, what he says, like in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word is uh, the word is with God and the word was God. Uh, you know, he's conveying something throughout this gospel uh, about the universal nature of Christ in that. In this text, we even have Jesus identifying himself uh, beyond time and within time. So that's an that's like an important thing that uh, John is really wrestling with too. That Jesus is uh, both before time and uh, the incarnation within time. And so for the author of John, uh, Jesus is he, he uses this phrase obviously a ton in this text, the, the bread of life, and yet his being is quote, alongside the Father, as Jesus says in this text. So there's all of these kind of confusing, mystical-sounding language paradoxes that exist at the same time. Like, okay, so he's, he's before time and in time and the bread of life and also the source of the bread of life and his being is alongside the Father. And, we, and I think these are fun. Uh, maybe they're just fun to me, uh, but like fun things to at least have an honest conversation about um, rather than um, have a reductionist view of some of this. Um, all of this to say is that uh, John assumes the, divin the divinity of Jesus in a particular way that I think is worth wrestling with. Uh, even if you don't hold like a literal or inerrant view of the Bible, I think it's worth asking the questions around Jesus's identity. And this is a great story um, that can serve as a vehicle that we can do that through and how the author of the gospel of John tells this story of Jesus. One thing that might be worthwhile talking about on Sunday is that uh, no matter what our view of the Bible is at this point or, or the stories that we tell, um, we always bring our ex own experiences, our own politics and our own biases to the text. And I think that's really important to remind ourselves when we question texts like this about Jesus' identity is that we tend, like we will always tend to project our own ideals 
onto Jesus to see what we're hoping to find in him. And then, you know, there's nothing really wrong with that as long as we sort of recognize that we, at some level, we are always projecting uh, our own politics onto Jesus. We find we can find that in him and in the text. That's not to say that there are no uh, sort of political uh, trajectories around love and justice in the Bible, but it's something that it's only natural for us to do. So I think as long as we recognize this, it's uh, it's not too much of a problem. It only becomes a, a real issue, uh, and you see this both in conservative and progressive forms of Christianity, is uh, that somebody talks like they have a pure or true form of Christianity, which is another way of just sort of papering over the crosses because it's not it's really not acknowledging the the whole problematic history of Christianity, which is very, very complex. Uh, you know, and that is to say that one side or the other, you know, makes 100% truth claims about what uh, justice is and beauty is and what love looks like. Um, these things are always uh, beyond our grasp. And I've said it before, but as soon as progressive forms of Christianity, and I, I, I rag on both, and I, I definitely rag on progressive Christianity because that's the space that we're per, sort of predominantly uh, situated in. And so I feel like it's important to sort of just point out the tendencies within our own uh, time and space. But I, I will hear or encounter uh, speakers that will kind of talk about with 100% confidence the understand, like one's understanding of progress and absolute justice, and then reading that into the text. So I think that kind of hubris uh, can, can be problematic, just as uh, we know that oppressive structures in Christianity um, have been problematic for uh, its entire history and for hundreds of years. But it's a complicated, it's a really complicated history that sometimes I think we have a tendency to sort of read ourselves into Jesus, read our own politics into Jesus, and then, um, and sort of uh, just leave the complicated stuff uh, behind. So I think it can be helpful to instead position ourselves like we talked about last week as people who are receiving or being invited um, into the story, into the text for ourselves to be called and challenged by the unknowability of much of the scriptures, the stories, um, rather than assuming that we know their uh, original meaning for the original audience. And I think this can really draw us to, to, to a place of um, hope and openness that gets us out of our preconceived notions of our own lives and who we think Jesus to be, and then how we view ourselves in light of that call. Because that's uh, that's the other important aspect is in light of all of the biases that we bring to to the text and to our lives and to who we want Jesus to be, which is essentially what's happening in this long story that we've covered for uh, several weeks, is the human tendency to uh, attach ourselves to Jesus, to want to put Jesus in a, a particular box. And then if that whether we're the people from last week or uh, find ourselves in the position of the religious authorities, where we're sort of unsatisfied by uh, who Jesus claims to be, rather than uh, receiving the invitation and openness for what 
Jesus is actually claiming about himself in this text. So, uh, okay, moving on. So in this particular story, we have uh, the continuation of this discourse that we've talked about, and we see the tonality shift uh, from those that were curious to find Jesus after he fed them uh, to uh, the group, which I think, you know, they had some sincere, all that misguided questions for Jesus. And then there's a clear contrast this week that we see the religious opposition interrogate Jesus about being the bread of life and sort of saying that his source is from heaven, the bread uh, from heaven, and he makes the man a comparison. And as uh, Jesus universalizes and explains, uh, mysteriously explains his bread of life comments, he further uh, emphasizes his connection to the Father. And the significance of this, I think, is, uh, you know, what he says in the message translation here is that to bring real life. That's, uh, he decenters himself uh, rather than they're trying to pin him down. This is Joseph's son, it's Mary's son. Um, and he doesn't make uh, self identity claims, right? He, he decenters himself in the sense that he's saying, well, it has to do with uh, connection to uh, what the, the gospel and he call the father, right? The connection to the father for the purposes of bringing real life, eternal life. And then that is emphasized, we know, in the Gospel of John, um, broadly speaking. And I think that it's so interesting that it's incredibly universal that he even mentions um, the completion of time, like almost situating himself outside of time. So this takes his bread of life comments from last week, which we carried over from this week further to tell the people gathered that um, he, he's come down from heaven, like the man in the wilderness, which is something they brought up last week to him, uh, that he is actually outside of the entire concept of time. So they're trying to pin him down. You're from this family structure. And he, he makes it about something different. I've, one of the commentaries that I read this week that was interesting was how this charge about who Jesus was based on his occupation and his uh, family would have been the religious authorities attempt to, to shame him or to take his, his honor. So in, we talk about honor, shame culture a lot in the first century, but that would have been a way for them to say, Hey, you're like, we know who you are. We know your uh, socioeconomic class. We know what family you come from. We know what uh, job your father had. And, you know, in other gospels, they talk about uh, they demean Jesus or shame Jesus for his own occupation, being a lowly um, tecton, carpenter, construction worker, that kind of thing. And instead of sort of asserting his own self-identity claims, he he decenters himself, both uh, saying that, his source of authority comes from God. And actually I'm situated beyond time and within time. Anyway, I think this is profound because uh, Christianity and uh, Western culture broadly, this, we measure each other in similar ways, whether that's uh, systemic racism, whether that's uh, socioeconomic status, uh, where what country of origin somebody is from, all these things that uh, are ways that we uh, shame and take honor 
away from human beings created in the image of God based on um, systemic class categories. And we can even do this to ourselves, uh, things that we uh, say about ourselves or messages that we have internalized from our family, our culture, our religion. And we know that um, when we make ourselves the center, which happens, we Western culture is incredibly individualistic. Uh, we are in a constant need to live from a space of anxiety, to prove ourselves, to measure up to certain value standards, which can be secular or religious, conservative or progressive. In religious context, many of us know the feeling of some form of moral failure that the institution has said that we have fallen short of if we don't do X, Y, and Z. Uh, there was an Instagram video of this, this week that uh, I came across, and I want to play this clip real quick and then uh, talk about it on the other side. So I actually think the scariest verse in the entire Bible for me is Matthew seven twenty one, And Jesus is talking to a crowd of people saying, many who say, Lord, Lord, will not get into heaven. And he looks at them and says, many of you on that day will say, Lord, Lord, I did this, I did this, I did that. And he will look at you and say, away from me, you evildoer. I never knew you. Okay, so this is on a sort of a funny Instagram account, but I am not sure if this individual is serious or where the video clip comes from, but it it gives us a sense of what evangelical shame sounds like and feels like. And it might be something that uh, a similar thought or position that you have been in the past, but I wanted to, I think it really illustrates that, um, how religion, uh, still shames and creates, um, moral behavioral expectations and then puts them onto, projects them onto a big other, uh, a God that, uh, is judging the individual. Again, this is an individualistic society Christianity is a broadly an individualistic faith because it has been reduced to whether or not someone's soul, individual soul is saved so they can go to heaven or hell. I mean, that's the reductionistic uh, stream of a lot of Western Christianity. And this is in, obviously incredibly harmful. And different forms of this can exist in progressive Christianity or uh, consumer spirituality, because it's not free from this cycle of shame, because it still it still centers the self to uh, perform, achieve, or work for some sense of um, goodness that we feel is absent or could be attained by another retreat or church service or book or seminar or podcast or whatever, that this sense of like lack or absence, uh, that the goodness is not inherent. And we often feel like there's this, uh, like a well of anxiety that I think can go unnoticed. 
that takes us back to a sense of shame that we are not accepted, loved, and embraced by God without the need to do anything. So in this, whether it's secular, religious, conservative, progressive, when we continue to make uh, attempts to validate ourselves in this way, to attach our identities to something so that we can get some sense of validation that we're seeking, um, whether that's from others or whether that's from our perceived sense of what God expects from us. Um, what Christ is saying here in this, in this text, and Kevin made a great point to bring that up last week, that uh, there's an interesting notion in the, in the Gospel of John that uh, it's not so much the, the historical Jesus talking in the Gospel of John, but Christ talking. And Christ is bringing the people in this story to uh, what I would what I would say is like an, a different kind of consciousness, a different way of thinking about uh, their sense of self, decentering even Jesus's own identity, because he's not self-identifying to like uh, identifying himself to this is what I do. Or yeah, I, hey, didn't you know I fed five thousand people yesterday? Um, he's he's bringing it back to. Uh, Christ as the center. And maybe you've heard bon, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer has a, a great book called Christ the Center. And I think that's an interesting uh, way to look at this text and to at least understand, we talked about last week about uh, receiving and the posture of re receiving, being one of innate vulnerability uh, and letting go. It's something that we can't muscle ourselves. Because when we start to muscle things ourselves, uh, we go right back into some form of like ego attachment to the things that we are doing, whether that's uh, certain moral behaviors, or we're trying to seek validation from something. Um, when Jesus is saying, like, the bread is here. The bread is here. It is already given. And it's in this mystery. It is in this beauty. It is in this... Uh, this dance of unknowing where you cannot pin Jesus to any one thing. You cannot project our own uh, egos and identities onto Jesus, our own politics or whatever onto Jesus, where we feel like we need to uh, then measure up to, to that ideal, that form, that expectation of whatever um, that projection Jesus sort of expects from the people. It's from that place of, mystery and unknowing, uh, where we can actually receive grace, where we can actually receive acceptance. And uh, patron saint of Mission Hills, Father Richard Wart, you know, he talks about this in, in terms of prayer and in terms of uh, silence, letting go, however you want to say, say that, and uh, in how we can attach, we can attach our egos and we can attach our uh, identities onto anything. He says, like, uh, as soon as you realize you're praying, you're not praying, right? It's like, you can do so many things for God and be the furthest away from God that you've ever been. It's like in the space of presence, being, silence, something as simple as the bread of life, the manna from heaven, the, uh, the what is this, uh, the curiosity, it is, it is from that space of unknowing and acceptance, um, what Thomas Merton called the, the palace of nowhere, the, the nothing here, the nothingness, the, the absence. 
it's in that space um, of grace, of of acceptance, when we're not trying to seek validation, we're not trying to make any kind of definitive statements, that we can actually live from that that space. We're not driven by, um, like last week we talked about how uh, technology plays such a role in um, the modern life and the, the, the anxieties that come along with these tools that we, we use every day. I mean, my phone is in my hand all the time. And how that is not a neutral uh, tool. Uh, the, the theorist Mar- Marshall McLuhan had this phrase that uh, we shape our tools and our tools shape us. And we think of things, the technologies that we use, we talked about security cameras last week, uh, we talked about we're going to use phones, uh, that these are not, we think of them as neutral tools. Uh, and we don't realize how they actually change our engagement with the world. They actually, they don't even change, not only change our behaviors, but they are like changing our, our consciousness at some level that, you know, we, we are identifying and using these technologies at such an intimate level that they are changing our behavior, uh, ideologies and identities. And I don't think that that we can talk about that on Sunday, but I don't think that that is an overstatement that has to be challenged by this gospel of acceptance by Christ the center, whether that's uh, the anxiety that comes from social media or just all of the pressures of modern life. Uh, if you haven't started the the show on HBO, White Lotus, I cannot recommend it enough. I would love to talk about it on Sundays because I think it's one of the greatest examples of the anxiety that different kinds of people are unconsciously driven by. And yeah, I would love to talk about it on Sunday or a Sunday in the future. I probably don't have enough time to to bring it up here, but there is this one scene uh, where there's there a family that's on vacation. They're at the beach and all of the family members are completely absent from the experience of being on vacation together. They're together, but they are not together at all. And maybe you have a similar experience like this or something pops into your mind where you've been with a group of people and everybody is together, but nobody's together. And this is, I think, a, a really common problem in our current time is that we are so, we can be so disconnected, right? It's kind of trope now that like the, the, the technology and the devices that were meant to uh, connect us further have actually uh, disconnected. They've robbed something of the humanity out of this. There was a guy, what's his name? Uh, I forget his name. I'll, I'll find it, maybe put it in the show notes. But he was talking about how, how Zoom has, uh, in this Zoom world, has robbed us of the humanity because we see the body on the other side, but we're actually changing the way we behave because we were sort of self-conscious about how we're perceived on the other side of Zoom. So it sort of changes the way that we interact with each other because we get to see ourselves as we're looking at other people. And oftentimes we're so self-conscious of how we're being perceived when in person we are just a body. We're not so 
hopefully we're, hopefully we're not so self-conscious of how we're being perceived or how our body looks in conversation. But on Zoom, it, ch it, it changes the dimension of how we actually interact with people. And something about our humanity is, uh, is lost in that kind of world. And so I'm just thinking about all the ways that our behavior changes, our, uh, the self-centered nature of our society, even though, um, you know, not saying that as a way to sort of like, uh, like rag on modern society, but if we just look at our inability to be present with one another, our inability to be present with ourselves, the inability for us to hear God's word of true grace and acceptance because we're constantly trying to validate ourselves in different kinds of religious ways, um, cultural ways, political ways. We're constantly seeking some sort of validation from other people or even the church. Uh, we see this in progressive Christianity a lot, that people can even come back to sort of a different form of Christianity. But one of the reasons, maybe even unconsciously, that they're coming back is they're still seeking some form of validation when Jesus is actually saying, the bread is already here. Like, you already have it. Uh, we even have this kind of um, invitation to presence in the Lord's Prayer. Like, your will be done. And even in this text, Jesus says something very similar about God's will being done in him. And this is not how... A lot of Christianity might point to it being some sort of like predestination thing, like there's this absolute plan for a person's life. We're not talking about that. But it is actually, uh, again, Christ the center. Christ the center in the space of presence, in the space of being your will be done. Decentering ourselves as um, the, as if we were the center of the story, as if we were the center of uh, the universe. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, Catholic saint, said, you know, goodness and being are the same thing. So maybe some thoughts to, to wrap it up. You know, Jesus's identity is grounded in this kind of mystery. I think we lose something if we try to come away with some kind of definitive statement about what Jesus is saying about his identity here. But his identity is grounded in this mystery beyond time and in time. The materiality of the incarnation, the materiality of the bread, that from this kind of acceptance, that from this, um, there was a quote by Bonhoeffer that I wanted to read. Let's see if I can find it. Um, and he says, we do not mean that we know something before or about what or who God was apart from Jesus and then applied it to Christ all that we are able to say about God is that we have gained by a glance at him. I like this idea of um, a glance, uh, an unattached notion of Christ, uh, of grace being freely given and creating the, the capacity uh, to step out of the center ourselves and to freely receive, to, to be able to say your will be done in a different kind of way. To be able to sit with that kind of deep presence, belonging, acceptance. That Christ cannot be claimed, but it creates space for this kind of mystery. Something that claims us, calls us, inspires us. Not in a way that we can then reattach our own identity to that, but it changes our 
the experience of our lives, our consciousness, so that we can continually be reminded that it's only a, a gift that we can accept. And that decenters, hopefully, ourselves at the uh, as the center of this thing. It's only a gift that we can accept. Can we truly breathe into that? And that's, you know, not to be like, uh, you know, in a cheesy way, but just breathe into the, the, the presence of that. That like Aquinas said, that goodness and being are the same thing. Just bread for this moment, breath for this moment. So maybe the last question is, um, let's see if I can find it. Uh, what kind of world does this posture create? This posture towards faith and life, this call, this invitation. What kind of world does this create? Where we're not attaching, reducing, judging. And I, I would hope maybe, at least for me, um, so go back to that idea of like sitting at the table and being present. That it's from that place of grace and acceptance. Uh, I'm sure you've seen people sitting at a, a table at a restaurant when everybody's on their phone, right? You see that all the time. Uh, sure, I'm, guil I'm probably guilty of doing it uh, from time to time. Like we have a really hard time uh, just sitting at a table with the people that are around us. And the table is a powerful image in the Christian tradition. So maybe as we move from uh, self-centeredness to a kind of Christ-centeredness, we can ramp up this story by thinking about the fact that there, we, we might realize if we, if we sort of accept the gift, if we can kind of continually accept this gift uh, and move from that space of self-centeredness to Christ-centeredness, we can see that there's plenty of bread to go around. If we are willing to sit at the table with presence and gratitude, so we understand that we are not ourselves a sinner. And if Christ is a sinner, and if we live and taste from this place, the invitation of grace starts to make more and more room at the table. Okay, I think I'll leave it there for this week. Uh, hope to see you on Zoom on Sunday at 10 a.m. and then next week in person on uh, August 15th at 10 a.m. as well. And as always, as we approach this week, may we love God, embrace beauty, and live life to the fullest. Be well.